Merriam-Webster defines paradise as a place or state of bliss, felicity, or delight. So my question for you this morning is, what is paradise for you? What is paradise for you? Now, there are many people who view paradise as a lush tropical island with exotic fruit, beautiful views, crystal clear water, accompanied with warm sunshine and maybe even a refreshing breeze. Last summer, my wife and I and our two boys enjoyed a week of vacation in such a place. We went uh, into the Western Caribbean, and we landed at a place called Ocho Rios, Jamaica, and it was there that we went to a place called Duns River Falls. I don't know if you've ever been to Duns River Falls, but Duns River Falls is where the fresh water of the river comes and meets the salt water of the ocean. It's a beautiful place. It's very serene and picturesque, lush and beautiful. It's paradise, so to speak. But for some people, paradise isn't on a beach somewhere. There are others who think paradise is more like being in the mountains on top of the lush green mountain, looking in at the breathtaking views, maybe over by the parkway, listening to the sound of a rushing whitewater river, a trout stream, or listening to the sounds of the animals in the forest, in the quiet. You see, whatever your paradise is, I think that all of us can agree that paradise is meant to be a place of peacefulness. Paradise is a place in which we want to be because it stands in opposition to the chaos and to the burdens of our day-to-day lives. We wish every day could be a day of paradise. Today, as we come to the second word of Christ from the cross, Jesus speaks of paradise and he extends it to one of the criminals who hangs right next to him. Luke tells us that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, and literally the word here means that they were evildoers. Now, Matthew and Mark both refer to these criminals as robbers, which is where we often get the the assumption that they were thieves that were hanging next to Jesus on the cross. But we're not privy to know what type of evil behavior they have committed. But what we do know is that whatever they have done has been deemed worthy of capital punishment. Jesus, on the other hand, has committed no evil at all, and yet he receives the equal punishment as those who are being crucified next to him. And during this time, the rulers and the crowds have been mocking him, and now he hangs in humiliation before everyone as an inscription over him declares in Greek, Latin, and in Hebrew that he is the king of the Jews. Jesus is in horrific pain. He is in agony and at his most vulnerable state as a human being. And in that moment, he is now mocked by the criminal who hangs next to him, saying, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This criminal sides with the opposition of Jesus, with the crowds and with the rulers who mock and jeer at him. Those who wanted him dead on that cross... He sees Jesus as a joke, far from a savior, far from a king, much less a messiah. 
You see, a Messiah literally means to be a deliverer. And if Jesus is really a Messiah, surely he would deliver himself and both of these men in their desperation. If this man remains blinded that Jesus' death must happen in order for salvation to exist. And while the inscription above his head is meant to mock him, paradoxically, it proclaims the gospel truth. In the midst of this, the other criminal speaks up to defend Jesus, saying, Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Rather than piling up insults on Jesus, this man speaks up against the criminal and the crowds who jeer him. He knows that they are all under God's judgment for what they've done. And soon, in due time, they will be meeting that righteous judge face to face. But he also acknowledges that both he and the other criminal are receiving fair treatment for what they have done. They are without excuse. Yet somehow this man knows enough about Jesus and what has transpired to know that he has been treated unfairly and that he has done absolutely nothing wrong. He knows that Jesus is being treated like him, but is unjustly crucified. And he can accept his own punishment as deserving, but Jesus is as criminal on behalf of all who have spoken lies against him, and he refuses to be silent as others hurl insults. Instead, he calls Jesus by name. He says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, in Luke's gospel, if you read the gospel of Luke, you will find that the disciples always refer to Jesus as Lord. They never call him Jesus. They call him Lord. And if you read the rest of Luke's gospel, you will find that Jesus is only called by name by two groups of people. One, those who are in need of healing, those who are in despair, and by the demons who call him out. This criminal invokes the name of Jesus, his name, which literally means the Lord saves. And he asks him to remember him as he enters into his kingdom. His request, remember me, is reminiscent of Joseph. When Joseph was thrown into prison and he began to interpret these dreams, he told the cupbearer who was going to get out to remember him when he came before Pharaoh. These words, remember me, is reminiscent of another woman named Hannah who prayed to God because she was barren and she wanted to have a child to remember her. And in doing so, she would devote that child to the Lord's service in Samuel. We hear these words evoked in the book of Psalms over and over and over. Remember me, remember me in distress when the psalmist cries out for God to deliver. His request of Jesus to remember him is an act of faith. In his despair, he trusts that Jesus is about to enter into his kingdom and he wants to be a part of that. He wants to be with him. And it makes me wonder, was he privy to hear what Jesus had said to Pilate when he was brought before him in the crowds? Because Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. 
Did he hear Jesus utter that before they were led to the skull? We don't know. We don't know if he did, but what we do know is that while others are mocking Jesus and hurling insults at him, this man puts his hope in him. And Jesus responds to his faith, saying to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus promises him that he will remember him. In fact, he will experience his salvation today in paradise. And Jesus is not talking about taking him to a lush, exotic island. Jesus is not talking about taking him to the most beautiful of mountains. Jesus is talking about taking him to paradise, taking him to heaven. We get this image of paradise in several passages in Scripture The prophet Isaiah speaks of the restoration of Israel, saying this. He says, The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like paradise or Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. The Apostle Paul, too, speaks of a vision that he received in which he was caught up to paradise. And he speaks kind of in the third person, I know a man who happened to be caught up into paradise. Paul's really talking about himself. And he says that he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. And then Jesus himself speaks to the church in John's Revelation. In chapter 2, verse 7, saying, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise. This image goes back to the very beginning. The very beginning of Scripture when God created the heavens and the earth and human beings. Indeed, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we're told, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis tells us that God's creation was very good and that God placed man and woman in this garden to work and to take care of it. And God's presence was with them there in that garden. You see, paradise is being in the very presence of God as it was intended in the very beginning. But disobedience and sin crept in and forced Adam and Eve out of this paradise. They had to leave the garden, never to return to it. And all of Scripture tells the story of God's unrelenting love and pursuance of sinful humanity to restore and to redeem what was lost. And in the fullness of time, God enters our world in Jesus the Christ in order to reconcile the effects of sin and death that stemmed from the banishment of the Garden of Eden. Speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Essentially what Paul is saying here is that you and I are criminals. We're evildoers. Just like those two men crucified next to Jesus. We're alienated from God. We've been kicked out of the garden. Jesus, who was and is the fullness of God, and as Todd so eloquently showed you, came and gave his life on the cross in order to reconcile us so that we might be presented as holy and without blemish. In the church, we call this justification, in which we are justified. It's just as if we never sinned before. When God looks at us, he looks at us through different lenses. He looks at us not in the sinfulness that we're in. He puts on bloodstained glasses in which we look through the lens of Jesus Christ. And when he sees you, he sees perfection, not because you are perfect, but because Jesus is. And he has made you perfect by his blood shed on the cross. Jesus tells us in Luke, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When Jesus is speaking to this criminal on the cross, he is not lying to him. He is not giving him some ideal or utopia to be excited about only for it not to come true. Jesus knows that today he will be with him in paradise because this is why he's come. And in him, the kingdom of God, paradise, has been clearly seen. You see, he's shared God's kingdom, this paradise on earth, as he's healed the sick and he's fed the hungry, as he's raised the dead to life and cast out demons from those who were tortured by so many. Jesus offered mercy and grace to all sinners and he shared the love of God with everyone, even to those who opposed him. And even from the cross last Sunday as we read, Jesus does the unimaginable and the unthinkable as he hangs there and is being tortured and made fun of. He prays that God would forgive those who do not know what they are doing. Jesus' words then to the criminal on the cross, that he will be with him in paradise, should bring us comfort and not discomfort. For if we think that Jesus' grace is unwarranted to this evildoer, then we are guilty of self-righteousness, ready to cast stones that, according to Jesus, we aren't capable of throwing. Instead, we are called to rejoice That even from the cross, Jesus is doing the work of God, extending grace as his arms are stretched wide open to every sinner, even the worst. In fact, Paul reminds us, he says, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' death is for every sinner, 
for every criminal, for those who are incarcerated, and for those whose sins will never be made known publicly. Christ died for all. And what Jesus does on the cross is he's writing the wrong of sin. He's reversing this curse placed on humanity. He's restoring the created order back to the way in which God intended from the very beginning for it to be. And while paradise may have been lost, Jesus has come to make paradise a reality and a hope for all who trust and believe in him. I find that our vision of paradise is so often focused on the realities of what we know and for what we long for here on this earth. In our eyes, paradise is a vacation getaway. It's a place of peace and of rest and of relaxation. But the paradise of Scripture is so much more than that. It's the place in which God dwells in all of His fullness and glory. Paradise is a beautiful garden like no other where provision replaces disparity, where grace erases all sin, where forgiveness restores the alienated, where perfect love casts out fear, where brokenness finds healing, where peace replaces discord, a place where there is no more crying, there is no more pain, there is no more death. That's paradise. God intends for it to be. And John gets this vision, this revelation in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, telling us, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Paradise is not a vacation getaway. It's an eternity of life, real life, of worship, and praise to the one who is deserving and worthy of it. It's a return to the Garden of Eden. And paradise is a promise for all of us, not because we have earned it, not because we're deserving of it. In fact, only because Jesus has freely offered it to us. And one day we will experience the glory and the hope of heaven in all of its fullness, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. But until then, we are called to live into the kingdom of God here on earth. God's paradise today, even as we wait for it to come later so that others may see and experience the good news that resides in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Jesus has promised to be with us. He told us that he wouldn't leave us as orphans. They would send his spirit to be among us and to live within us, to guide us and to teach us and to empower us to live faithfully as his servants. So the Apostle Paul, after speaking of 
what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, he reminds us, hey, it's not just about knowing what God has done for you. It's about living it out. Therefore, as you're here on this earth and waiting for this to come, practice the kingdom. Live the paradise on earth, church. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul says, live in gratitude. Live in gratitude to the one who offers us his life-giving salvation, which we experience today, now, even as we wait for that day to come. And together, as the church, our lives are meant to imitate our Savior who freely loves and who freely forgives and who freely cares for the needs of everyone, sinners and saints alike. So today, as we remember the truth of Jesus' words, the promise that he gave to that criminal, those words are our promise too. That no sin that we have committed prevents us from receiving the grace of God, the gift of salvation. But that together, in gratitude, we're called to not only experience that good news, but to share that good news of God's kingdom now with the blessed assurance and future promise of paradise that awaits us all. And we're to do that, not just with one another, but beyond these walls to those who do not know, who have not experienced, and who need to experience that grace too. Friends, may we do so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.